from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Washington Post, I'm the Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 8th. Today, how Trump is recasting his response to Charlottesville, a presidential candidate's complicated relationship with her dad, and life after the one-child policy. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. It's been almost two years since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the immediate reaction from the president after that rally is still a political issue, even as we go into 2020. So there's sort of no world in which Donald Trump is physically capable of not taking the bait from Joe Biden. And he felt that Joe Biden was impugning him, and, and Joe Biden indeed was. That, that was the whole point of Joe Biden's launch video. Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Post. Charlottesville, Virginia, is home to the author of one of the great documents in human history. We know by heart. Joe Biden, when he launched his 2020 presidential bid. Charlottesville is also home to a defining moment for this nation in the last few years. Kind of drew President Trump back into this debate by launching with a video that featured footage from that Unite the Right rally of these sort of white supremacist shaved heads. It was there on August of 2017 we saw Klansmen and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come out in the open. Carrying tiki torches, shouting, Jews will not replace us. He cast his candidacy in kind of moral terms, right, saying that he, he saw these people, their 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 crazed faces, illuminated by torches, veins, veins bulging, bulging the hate they were spewing, and he just felt like he had no choice but to get into the race. A lot of people in the Trump White House think that's a little disingenuous. They think Joe Biden would be running with or without Charlottesville. But that is how Joe Biden cast his candidacy, sort of in moral terms as a fight for, like, the soul of America with Donald Trump. And how has President Trump responded to that? Trump was forced to wade in. To be fair to him, he responded only when he was asked. He was asked in sort of two venues immediately. One was in an interview with a conservative radio host, Mark Levin. The other was uh, with reporters on the South Lawn. And when he was asked, he kind of said, I've answered that question. And if you look at what I said, you will see that that question was answered perfectly. And I was talking about people that went because they felt very strongly about the monument to Robert E. Lee, a great general, whether you like it or not. Look, as I said, I've done nothing wrong. As I said at the time, I've always condemned white supremacists. But I was only voicing support for those peaceful protesters who just so happened to want to keep the statue of Robert E. Lee up. And when everyone is sort of taking down statues. And by the way, Robert E. Lee, you know, was frankly a very great Civil War general. But— We know that that's not what the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville was about. It wasn't about taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. It was was a rally of neo-Nazis and white supremacists. That's right. So the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists at the time did wrap themselves allegedly in the banner of protesting the taking down of these statues. But in talking to people who were at this rally, there's no world in which someone who was there put it to me. 
You could have wandered into this rally and sort of thought it was a statue protest gone wrong, right? These were people who had the haircuts of white supremacists and neo-Nazis who were waving Nazi flags and chanting Nazi slogans. There were Klansmen dressed in Klans robes. I mean, the, the reason they were there was a rally for that. That is not how you peacefully protest taking down a statue. And why do you think President Trump is trying to recast this moment? A couple of reasons. First, it it was an incredibly low moment in his presidency. Outside critics say that, and even people in his own White House publicly and privately. Well, I do think there's blame. Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. Trump is eager to kind of explain away his behavior and his actions and his statements at that time. And when you hear him talk about it again, he says, I was, I was, was of course, not supporting the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis. I was only supporting these peaceful protesters. And he also sort of tried to claim again incorrectly that they were just kind of local people from the University of Virginia neighborhood who happened to come out. And as he had said at the time, and which got him into a lot of trouble, just very fine people. And you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And in his responses after the rally, it felt like there was this both sidesism that that President Trump was doing, where he was saying, I condemn these people, but also a lot of them aren't so bad. And it got a lot of people really angry. It sure did. I I mean, the president basically, he gave three statements over four days. You can argue which one of those was the most genuine, but a number of people believe it was his third statement where he was sort of raw and visceral and unscripted, which is generally when the president is most honest and kind of channeling his gut. But he, he said a lot of things, and this is kind of classic trademark Trump. He said, I've condemned neo Nazis, I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. And in, in sort of saying all these things and speaking sort of just unclearly enough, it, it he kind of acted as a Rorschach test where anyone could listen to it and hear what they wanted to hear. So his critics could very fairly hear you know what, you didn't come right out and forcefully condemn white supremacists. And he didn't. And and they could be very upset. They could say, how could you say both sides are to blame? How could you say there's very fine people in that group of, you know, torch-waving, swastika-waving white supremacists and neo-Nazis? But he did sort of utter the words, I condemn white supremacy. So his defenders could say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? When he talks about the very fine people, he's just talking about those peaceful protesters who nobody really saw. And... He, of course, condemns all forms of hatred and bigotry and racism and violence and white supremacy and anti-Semitism. The fact that President Trump is going back to this moment now and in some ways, like, taking the bait from Joe Biden and, and his his campaign video, what do you think that says about President Trump? Or, or do you think that he sees a political risk here that his response after Charlottesville will get him in trouble in the upcoming election. I think the reason he decided to weigh in was on some front less strategic 
and more that this is a president who simply cannot help but take the bait. If someone attacks him, he's going to attack them back. In that moment, he was paying a ton of attention to Joe Biden because he and his campaign believed that Joe Biden could be quite formidable in some of those industrial Midwest states that Trump needs to win again to win in 2020. At the same time, once he decides to weigh in, I do think he was smart enough to recognize that that this was not a good moment for him. This this was a problem for him. And if he is going to weigh in, it might not be a bad idea to kind of try to smooth over some of that very rocky stretch in the face of Charlottesville. Because his form of weighing in isn't saying, let me be clear, I completely condemn these people. It's rewriting history in a way that never happened. How do you think the president's distortion of what happened in Charlottesville mirrors how he deals with a lot of situations like this? That's actually one of the reasons we decided to come back and look at this story. It was partially because we realized that by kind of observing the president's behavior, we we would be able to understand a number of things about how he responds to all sorts of controversies, right? So one is that he always refuses to apologize or admit error. Another is that he is absolutely defiant in the face of critics, and he often, criticism makes him even more likely to double down on something. He also views facts as malleable in the interest of self-preservation. And then the final thing is that his sort of either ability or willingness to speak, you know, unclearly allows for different people to hear different things in his response. His defenders can pick out sound bites that help them defend him, and his critics can pick out sound bites that help them attack him. And, and neither one of them are exactly 100% wrong. Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Washington Post. Senator Klobuchar. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, um, we're talking here about decency. It first kind of came to my attention, I think, the way it came to anyone's attention who knows anything about her and her dad at all was from the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. In that Brett Kavanaugh hearing, she kind of had a standout moment Many people even struggle with alcoholism and binge drinking. Um, my own dad struggled with alcoholism most of his life, and uh, he got in trouble for it, and there were consequences. And because it was partially about her and partially about her father, I felt like, well, that's a relationship I want to check out more. My name is Ben Terrace. I am a feature reporter in the style section. I'm working on a series about Democratic candidates for president, and I'm writing about them through the prism of their most important relationship. Ben wanted to know how these relationships affect who they are and how they'll approach their 2020 campaigns. And so he decided to look into Senator Amy Klobuchar's relationship with her father. Jim Klobuchar used to be a well-known reporter and columnist at a local newspaper. So the first place I met up with her was in her home in Minneapolis. <laughs> in a neighborhood that... Uh, not that long ago, and even now a little bit, was a little bit of a, a rough neighborhood. And her house was this beautiful old uh, townhouse with old wooden floors from the 1800s. And she brought me into her dining room and showed me clips that she had collected from her father's writing and put into a scrapbook. Okay, I just remember being horrified by this caption in the paper. <laughs> Jim Klobuchar and daughter encounter new relationship. And that's kind of how we started by just looking at his old newspaper articles and talking about him. I think it was part of the divorce thing. It was so public, everything, you know, so. And what was your sense of him from reading all his articles? So Jim Klobuchar came from a place in Minnesota called the Iron Range. It's the northern 
part of the state. It's rural. It's got a lot of mines. It's the way that Amy Klobuchar talks about it is that's where the country got the iron to build the country. So lots of union organizing, lots of religious folks, lots of hard drinkers. And so that's where he came from. And that's kind of the essence of Jim Klobuchar comes from the Iron Range. And he brought that with him when he moved to Minneapolis or outside of Minneapolis and became a, a reporter. And, and so he was kind of a populist. He cared a lot about working people. He cared a lot about finding the human stories behind major figures. He was also a liberal. He was also a, a, a Democrat. And I think Amy Klobuchar takes a lot of who she is from him. And when you talk to Amy Klobuchar about her dad, what did she say about what he was like behind the scenes? Well, part of Amy Klobuchar's story about growing up involves her dad not being around a lot. He was an alcoholic. He was a womanizer for a time. He divorced Amy's mother when she was still in school. And so that was difficult. But she also said that he always loved her and she always loved him and stayed friends after a time with her mother. So he was around, just not as much as she would like. And he was a big personality. He was the kind of person that would go on these epic trips, whether they were bike trips across the country or climbing mountains or jumping out of airplanes, often to write about in the, in the newspaper. And often he would take Amy. And so that's how she really got to know him, was not over awkward pizza dinners with her father, but on these big trips. That's why doing these trips made so much sense, because it was part of what his life, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, I'll show you the loudest pizza, the awkward dinners after the divorce. So how did her father's presence and personality affect Amy Klobuchar's leadership style? I think there's lots of ways that, that people can deal with having an alcoholic parent. One way could be falling into some of the same traps, which is something that happened to Amy Klobuchar's sister, Beth. Uh, she dropped out of school. She had addiction issues herself. She moved away. She changed her name. She cut her family out of her life, at least for a time. There was a reconciliation, but that was one way that she dealt with it that a lot of folks probably deal with having an alcoholic parent. Amy, on the other hand... For me, like a lot of people, I grew up in a family uh, with alcoholism and addiction. Took a different approach. And so I had a lot of times in my life where I was taking the keys away or saw him drinking down in the basement, uh, and it was, it was a hard thing. Which is kind of to be almost the perfect daughter, the person who became the valedictorian, who went to Yale, who was an up-and-coming lawyer right away, ran for Senate. Even as a young kid, she was trying to kind of make everything perfect. She said that she always wanted to have a perfect family. And so she would tell her dad to change his shirt on a bike trip before he goes to talk to the farmers to ask if they can camp in the backyard or was always taking the keys away from him, was, was trying to fix him even at a, at a young age. And she talks about having very high expectations for him, for herself, for her campaign, and her father had very high expectations. If he had a goal, if it was to bike around Great Lakes, he was going to do the whole thing. If he was going to climb a mountain, he was going to get to the top. If he had a goal, he was going to do it. He was going to accomplish it. And Amy says that that is something that she has acquired from him. But he also had a temper. And if the gas station pump wasn't working, he might slam it on the ground. If the motel attendant didn't want to take his cash, wanted to take a credit card, he might berate that attendant until somebody felt like crying. And Amy says that this is sort of an iron range style of communicating, and it's something that she has a little bit of as well. There's been accusations in various publications about her having 
a temper about her having problems with staff. There have been reports that she would throw office equipment in the direction of people or try to sabotage somebody's future employment if they were trying to leave. What she says about her own temper when asked about it is that she has a little bit of this Iron Range style herself. I know I can be uh, too tough sometimes and I can push too hard. That's obvious. But a lot of it is because I have high expectations for myself. I have high expectations for the people that work with me. And mostly I'm going to take those high expectations and bring them out to the country. Amy Klobuchar was relatively young when she first became aware of her dad's drinking problems. Anyway, is this cool? So this was a coffee shop and he just converted. How are you? Uh, I'll just have still water. It's good. In middle school, she started, I believe, to see some examples of his drinking. It was, she didn't always know when he was drunk. It was hard to tell, and, and he wasn't living in the house at that point, so... I don't remember being aware he was drinking. One instance was her and her father went to a Vikings game. He drove back towards home, pulled over at a bar. And I remember going to that bar and sitting alone drinking a Coke, and he was up with his friends talking, and then he must have drank a lot. And we got in the car, and right on 55, where we'll go, he went off the road with me in the car. And then when they got back in the car, he drove it into a ditch. And do you remember that? I mean, what yes, remember? I remember being really uh, scared. There was examples of Amy seeing her father take a swig from a bottle that he kept in the trunk of the car and him claiming it was mouthwash. There were times that when she got older, she would take the keys away from him while driving and demand that she was going to be the one driving because he'd had too much to drink. And it all culminated at one point in, in 1993 when Jim was arrested for drunk driving, for a DUI. And when he went to court, before the actual court hearing, there was a pretrial hearing where Jim was going to talk to a dependency counselor and they were going to make a recommendation for a sentencing. And Amy, who was a, a lawyer at the time, she was 33 years old, an up-and-coming lawyer, she testified, but she wasn't testifying as a character witness, not testifying on his behalf. Jim later wrote that it was like a prosecution. He's sober when I'm talking to him, and you go through what this has meant, what this meant to my mom, what this meant to my sister and me, and going through the stories of waiting on Christmas morning, looking out the window for him to get there. My mom kept saying, oh, he's still at work, he's writing his column, you know, those kinds of things. Mother's Day, birthdays. And just going through the harm that he had caused the people around him, even though he continued to be wildly successful in what he did. And she listed all the times that he drove drunk with her in the car, the times that she tried to take the keys away from him. So she was advocating in court for them to be tough on him. Yeah. What she was hoping was that this would lead to treatment for him, that he would have to go to a treatment center and, and stay there and, and get better. And that's what ended up happening. And when Jim later writes about this and when he later talked about this, this was kind of a pivotal moment for him because it was all laid out for him. He heard all the terrible things he had done, and yet he had a daughter who was there testifying kind of against him, but afterwards saying, I love you. I hope this didn't hurt you too badly. You just need this help. And he got it. What does Senator Klobuchar say about how these experiences of seeing her dad struggling with this, how they affected her. She talks about how 
as a young girl, she was forced to be much more independent. When you have a father who's not always around, when he's not always someone you can rely on, you have to be a much more independent person yourself. And you can also make the case that, that she is trying to do a similar thing with her candidacy that she did with her father, which is she sat him down. She told him, look, you need to change. This is going to be hard. She listed all the terrible things he had done instead of trying to make him feel better. So today, on an island in the middle of the mighty Mississippi... And what she's doing right now as a candidate is basically saying, look, a lot of these Trump voters, a lot of people who have voted for Donald Trump are from the places that my father is from. And I promise you this, as your president, I will look you in the eye. I will tell you what I think. I will focus on getting things done. That's what I've done my whole life. And no matter what, I'll lead from the heart. I understand these people. I win elections with their votes, even though they're also Donald Trump supporters. And they need somebody like me to look them in the eye and say, look, I know you're hurting. And it's not going to be easy, but if you follow me, we can make things better for you. So not just her upbringing and her politics, but the, the experiences with her father very much made her the candidate that she is now. What is Senator Klobuchar's relationship like with her dad now? So in recent years, Jim Klobuchar has been suffering from memory loss. He's, he was put in a home recently, a memory care unit of an assisted living facility, and his memory has been deteriorating. So recently he was at his daughter's announcement for president, and he was there in the front row, and he was proud, and he was happy. But when his friends came and talked to him about it later, he, he couldn't remember that it had happened. And so the relationship is its tricky, as it always is. She tries to be there for him as much as she can, but she's also on the road a lot because she's running for president. There are people who come to Jim Klobuchar to spend time with him, including Alcoholics Anonymous. They come to him now. He doesn't go to them. And she's getting constant updates about how he's doing. And he doesn't remember everything. He doesn't necessarily remember that Amy is running for president. But he's always proud of her. He talks about her all the time. He tells stories about her previous campaigns. And one thing that he says over and over again, according to people who spend time with him, is Amy's going a long way. Amy's going a long way. Ben Terrace is a feature reporter covering national politics. And now, one more thing. For 36 years, China strictly limited the number of babies that people could have. But in 2016, the one-child policy was officially reversed. The effects of this one-child policy have been huge and very negative. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. For starters, it's led to this huge gender imbalance in Chinese society. There are 100 million children who have grown up with no siblings, and their children are going to grow up with no aunts and uncles. So it's really, it really changed the fabric of Chinese society. Now China wants the opposite, more babies. But that's not necessarily what all Chinese people want. The government has realized that it has this huge economic problem looming and is now desperately trying to fix it. Simply put, you know, this manufacturing powerhouse that was built on cheap labor is now at risk of running out of workers. 
When I was talking to uh, women about whether they wanted to have a second child, I spoke to maybe 20 women out in Wuhan and Xiangning, these cities in Hubei province, and every single one of them said to me that they wanted their child to have a playmate, a companion. It was very clear that they had felt this sense of loneliness growing up, or there was this ingrained loneliness into this generation. So I think it really has had an impact and that's propelling them to want to have more than one child now. But the, um, the economics of all of this have changed so much over the course of these generations because Chinese parents are now pouring all of their resources into their one child. And so why did you decide to stop with one child? It's very uh, expensive. Yeah. And the mothers that I spoke to in the course of reporting this story said the government can't do anything, no matter how many tax breaks or how much money they threw at them. It would never be enough to kind of compensate for the kind of money they have to spend or they feel that they have to spend on their children now. China is not alone, even in East Asia, facing these kind of demographic challenges. But with China, we can see that so much of it can be attributed to the one-child policy because, you know, the birth rate just fell off a cliff after 1980. But also, there have been about 400 million abortions in China since 1980, since this policy was put into place. So this is really coercive. This is something that the Chinese Communist Party has imposed on people. And that's what's different from Japan or South Korea or other places where people are choosing not to have more babies. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Check out our website at postreports.com to find links to the stories featured in today's episode and to sign up for our daily newsletter, which goes out every afternoon with a heads up on the latest show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 